Section 15 of A History of the Four Georges and of William IV in Four Volumes, Volume 3, by Justin McCarthy and Justin Huntley McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 52 On the Charles River, Part 2. Wedderburn assailed Franklin in a speech whose ability was only surpassed by its ferocity. In the presence of an illustrious audience that numbered among its members some of the most famous men of that time or of any time, Wedderburn directed against Franklin a fluency of invective, a fury of reproach that was almost splendid in its unbridled savagery. The privy councillors, with one exception, rocked with laughter and reveled in applause as the Solicitor General pilloried the agent from the colony of Massachusetts Bay as a thief well-nigh a murderer, a man lost to all honor, all decency. The one grave exception to the grinning faces of the privy councillors was the face of Lord North. He sat fixed in rigidity, too well aware of all that depended upon the glittering slanders of Wedderburn to find any matter of mirth in them. Only one other man in all that assembly of genius and rank and fame and wit carried a countenance as composed as that of Lord North, and that was the face of the man whom Wedderburn was bespattering with his ready venom. Benjamin Franklin, dressed in a gala suit, unlike the sober habit that was familiar with him, stood at the bar of the house and listened with an unconquerable calm to all that Wedderburn had to say. If it was the hour of Wedderburn's triumph, it was not the hour of Franklin's humiliation. He held his head high and suffered no emotion to betray itself, while Wedderburn piled insult upon insult, and the majority of his hearers reeled in a rapture of approval. But if Franklin listened with an unmoved countenance, the words of Wedderburn were not without their effect upon him. He was human, and the slander stung him, but we may well believe that they stung him most as the representative of the fair and flourishing colony whose petition was treated with the same insolence that exhausted itself in attacking his honor and his name. The close philosophy of Diogenes Teufelsdruch is readily annotated by history. There are garments that have earned an immortality of fame. Such an one is the sky-blue coat, which Robespierre wore at the height of his power when he celebrated the festival of the Supreme Being, and in the depths of his degradation when, a few days later, he was carried to his death. Such an one is the gala coat of flowered Manchester velvet, which Franklin wore in his day of degradation, when he was compelled to listen with a tranquil visage and a throbbing heart to the fluent invective of Wedderburn, and which was laid away and left unused through five tremendous years not to be taken from its retirement until Franklin wore it again on the day of his greatest triumph, when he signed that treaty with England which gave his country her place among the nations of the world. Battles have been fought and won in the saddest of civil wars. The trained and seasoned troops of Europe had learned the lesson of defeat, from levies of farmers. English generals had surrendered to men of their own race and their own speech, 
and a new flag floated over a new world between the day when Franklin went smartly dressed to Westminster to hear Wedderburn do his best and worst, and the day when Franklin went smartly dressed to Paris as the representative of an independent America. Franklin's flowered coat is no less eloquent than Caesar's mantle. The man whom the court party employed to deal the death-blow to colonial hopes and to overwhelm with insult and abuse the colonial agent was a countryman and intimate friend of the detested Butte. Alexander Wedderburn attained the degree of eloquence with which he now assailed Franklin at a cost of scarcely less pains than those devoted by Demosthenes to conquer his defects. He had a strong and a harsh Scotch accent, and neither the accent nor the race was grateful to the London of the eighteenth century. Wedderburn's native tenacity enabled him in a great degree to overcome his native accent. He toiled under Thomas Sheridan, and he toiled under Macklin the actor, to attain the genuine English accent, and his labors did not go unrewarded. Boswell writes that he got rid of the coarse part of his Scotch accent, retaining only so much of the native woodnote wild as to mark his country, which if any Scotchman should affect to forget, I should heartily despise him so that by degrees he formed a mode of speaking to which Englishmen did not deny the praise of eloquence. Successful as an orator, secure in the patronage of the royal favorite, Wedderburn sought the society of the wits and was not welcomed by them. Johnson disliked him for his defective colloquial powers and for his supple readiness to go on errands for Butte. Foot derided him, as not only dull himself, but the cause of dullness in others. Boswell, who admired his successful countryman, assumed that his unfavorable appearances in the social world were due to a cold affectation of consequence from being reserved and stiff. The scorn of Johnson and the sneers of Foot would not have saved him from oblivion. He owes his unlovely notoriety to his assault upon Franklin, with all its disastrous consequences. Many years later, when Wedderburn was Lord Loughborough and Chief Justice of the Common Pleas, a humorous editor dedicated to him, ironically, a new edition of Franklin's Rules for Reducing a Great Empire to a Small One. The English government was now resolved to show that it would temporize no longer with the factious colonists, if, in a spirit of rash and ill-repaid good-nature, it had repealed certain taxes, at least it would repeal no more. The tax on tea existed, the tax on tea would be enforced, the tax on tea should be respected. The East India Company had a vast quantity of tea which it desired to sell. It obtained from the government the permission to export the tea direct to America, instead of being obliged to let it pass through the hands of English merchants. Under such conditions, the tea could be sold very cheaply, indeed, in the colonies, and the government hoped and believed that this very cheapness would be a temptation too keen for the patriotism of a tea-drinking city to withstand. 
if the king and the east india company were resolved to force their tea upon the american colonists the americans were no less stubborn in their resolution to refuse it the tea ships sailed the seas weathered the winds and waves of the atlantic only to be as it were wrecked in port the colonists in general and especially the colonists of massachusetts were resolved not to suffer the tea to be landed for they knew that once landed it could be sold so cheaply that it would be hard for many to resist the temptation to buy it every effort was made to prevent the importation in many cases the consignees were persuaded not wholly without menace to make public engagement to relinquish their appointments pilots were advised as patriots to lend no aid to the threatened importation indeed it was pretty plainly hinted to some of them that they would best prove their patriotism by using their especial knowledge in such a way as would most effectually prevent it boston set the example of self-denial and of resistance in december of seventeen seventy three three ships laden with tea arrived in her port their captains soon heard of the hostility to their mission were soon warned of the dangers that awaited them alarmed at their perils the captains declared their perfect willingness to return with their cargoes to england if they were permitted to do so by the board of customs and the persons to whom the tea had been consigned but the willingness of the captains was of no avail the consignees insisted that the tea should be delivered to them and neither the customs house nor the governor would grant the captain's permission to return but if the consignees and the authorities were resolved that the tea should be landed the citizens of boston were equally resolved that it should not their fantastic method of giving force to their resolution has made it famous in the dusk of a december evening the three tea-ships were suddenly boarded by what seemed to be a small army of mohawk indians in all the terror of their war-paint these seeming indians were in reality serious citizens of boston men of standing wealth and good repute wearers of names that had long been known and honored in the commonwealth the frightful paint the gaudy feathers the moccasins and wampum the tomahawks scalping knives and pistols that seemed so alarming to the peaceful captains of the boarded ships were but the fantastic accoutrements that concealed the placid faces and the portly persons of many a respectable and respected boston burgess the plan had been schemed out by a conclave of citizens around a bowl of punch in court street and was carried out with a success that was no less remarkable than its peacefulness the trappings of the red man concealed the identity of many prominent citizens friends of john hancock and samuel adams their rivals in ability and their peers in energy the sham savages were so numerous and so determined that no resistance was offered by the captains or the crews of the vessels the shore was picketed with sentinels ready to resist any interference on the part of any representatives of royal authority there was no interference the conspirators of the punch bowl and those who obeyed their instructions kept their secret so close and did their work so quickly that those in authority knew nothing about the business until the business was happily over in about two hours the entire cargo of the three tea ships was dragged out of the hold and flung into the sea 
the patriotic citizen who had asked significantly if tea could be made with salt water was satisfactorily answered by the mohawks when they cast overboard the last of their three hundred and forty-two chests and prepared to disappear as rapidly and as mysteriously as they had come during the whole adventure only one man was hurt who tried to secrete some of the tea about his person and who was given a drubbing for his pains the mohawks scattered and disappeared washed their faces rolled up their blankets concealed their pistols and axes and as many reputable boston citizens returned to their homes it is related that some of them on their way home passed by a house in which admiral montague was spending the evening montague heard the noise of the trampling feet opened the window and looked out upon the fantastic procession no doubt some news of what had happened had reached him for he is reported to have called out well boys you have had a fine night for your indian caper but mind you've got to pay the fiddler yet one of the mohawk leaders looked up and answered promptly oh never mind squire just come out here if you please and we'll settle the bill in two minutes the admiral considered the odds were against him that the joke had gone far enough he closed the window leaving the bill to be settled by whoso thought fit and the laughing savages swept on to their respectable wigwams if some very reputable citizens found a few leaves of tea in their shoes when they took them off that night they said nothing about it and nobody was the wiser so ended the adventure of the boston tea party which was but the prologue to adventures more memorable and more momentous we learn that at least one of these masquerading indians survived to so late a date as march of eighteen forty six men now living may have clasped hands with henry perkett and david kinnison and heard from their own lips the story of a deed that enraged a king offended chatham was disapproved of by george washington and was not disapproved of by burke the news of the boston tea party reached london on january nineteenth seventeen seventy four and was public property on the twenty first other news little less unpleasant soon followed at charleston tea was only landed to lie rotting in damp cellars not an ounce of it to be bought or sold in philadelphia a proclamation of december twenty seventh seventeen seventy three announced that the tea-ship being arrived every inhabitant who wishes to preserve the liberty of america is desired to meet at the state house this morning precisely at ten o'clock to advise what is best to be done on this alarming crisis what was best to be done proved to be to compel the tea-ship to return at once with its cargo to england new york refused to allow the tea-ship nancy to enter the harbor and if some tea was eventually landed under the cannon of a man-of-war it was only to be locked up in charleston and to be left to lie unused the bad news was received in england with an unreasoning fury by those whose fault it was and by those who knew nothing at all about the matter with a grave indignation by those who like pitt were as resolute to support the supremacy of england as to plead for justice to her colonies with despair by those who dreamed of an honorable and abiding union between the two peoples and with applause by those who admired any protest against injustice however vehement and irregular it is difficult in reading the debates on the troubles in america to credit the sanity of the majority of the speakers these advocated a colonial policy 
that should only have commended itself to a session of bedlamites and clamored for a treatment of the colonists that might well have shocked the susceptibilities of a savage no virginia planter could be more disdainful of the rights of his slaves or more resentful at any attempt to assert them than the average member of parliament was disdainful of the rights of the american colonists and resentful at their assertion the english country gentlemen who applauded the ministers and who howled at burke seemed to be absolutely unconscious that the men of massachusetts and the men of new york were not merely like themselves made in the same image but brethren of their own race blood of their blood and bone of their bone children of the same stock whose resistance to oppression was recorded at runnymede and worcester at the boyne and at culloden even if the colonists had been the knaves and fools and cowards that the parliamentary majority appeared to think them the action of that majority was of a kind eminently calculated to lend strength to the most feeble spirit and courage to the most craven heart the coarse contempt the brutal menace which were the distinguishing features of all that ill-timed oratory might well have goaded into resistance men who had been slaves for generations till servility had grown a habit yet this contempt and menace were addressed to men trained by harsh experiences to be stubborn in defence and sturdy in defiance men who had won their liberty from the sea and the wilderness who were as tenacious of their rights and as proud of their privileges as they were tenacious of the soil which they had wrested from the red man and the wolf and proud of the stately cities which had conquered the forest and the swamp it was the descendants of miles standish and john smith of endicott and bradford and underhill and winslow whom the squire westerns of westminster were ready to insult and were eager to enslave it must however be remembered that even men who had advocated the claims of the colonies were or professed to be shocked at the daring deed of the men of boston dean tucker declared that mutinous colonies were no use to england and had better be allowed to depart chatham found the action of the boston people criminal prompted by passions and wild pretenses in america george washington disapproved of the exploit the east india company pressed by the pinch of financial difficulties clamored for a revenge that the king was resolved to give them under his instigation lord north in the beginning of seventeen seventy four introduced the famous measure for closing the port of boston against all commerce the bill declared that in the present condition of the town and harbor the commerce of his majesty's subjects cannot be safely carried on there it was accordingly asserted to be expedient that the officers of his majesty's customs should be forthwith removed from the said town it was enacted that from and after the first day of june seventeen seventy four it shall not be lawful for any person or persons to lade or cause to be laden or put off from any quay wharf or other place within the town of boston or in or upon any part of the shore of the bay commonly called the harbor of boston into any ship vessel boat etc any goods wares or merchandise whatsoever or to take up discharge or cause or procure to be taken up or discharged within the town out of any boat lighter ship etc any goods wares or merchandise whatsoever under pain of the forfeiture of the goods and merchandise and of the boat
and so on, in a long and drastic measure practically intended to ruin Boston. This was what the government thought it well to describe by the word expedient. This was not all. Comprehensive alterations of the laws of the province followed. The Charter of Massachusetts was changed. The Council for the Province, which had hitherto been chosen by the people, was now to be chosen by the Crown, and the judges of the province were to be nominated by the Crown. Another measure authorized the Governor to send persons implicated in the disturbances to England for trial. Boston and the province were indeed to be heavily punished and sternly brought to their senses. The king and the king's ministers had hoped fondly, in the old as well as the new sense of the word, that their action toward the port of Boston would effectually humble the spirit and crush the opposition of that mutinous city. Their scheme was founded upon a nice calculation of the innate baseness of human nature. They argued that the closing of the port of Boston would turn the stream of her commerce in the direction of other cities, which would be only too glad to enrich themselves at the expense of their disabled comrade. While they believed that the punishment of Boston would thus breed a selfish disunion in the province of Massachusetts, they trusted also that the spectacle of the severe punishment meted out to Massachusetts would have its wholesome deterring effect upon other colonies and destroy at once whatever desire for union might exist among them. The king and the king's ministers were the more deceived. Their ingenious scheme produced a result precisely the opposite of that which they so confidently anticipated. The other ports of Massachusetts did not seize with avidity the opportunity for plunder afforded them by the humiliation of Boston. The other colonies were not driven into discord by the sight of the punishment of Massachusetts. On the contrary, the ports of Massachusetts refused to take advantage of the degradation of Boston, and the colonies were urged and almost forced into union by what they regarded as the despotic treachery of the English crown. The most devoted friend, the most enthusiastic advocate of the rights of the American colonists, could scarcely have devised better means of drawing them together and welding them into a solid fellowship than those which had been employed by George the Third and his advisers for the purpose of keeping them apart forever. An immense number of copies of the Boston Port Bill were sent with great rapidity all over the colonies. In the fine phrase which we must needs believe to be Burke's, these had the effect which the poets ascribed to the Fury's torch. They set the countries through which they passed in a flame. At Boston and New York, the populace had copies of the bill printed upon mourning paper with a black border, which they cried about the streets under the title of a barbarous, cruel, bloody, and inhuman murder. In other places, the bill was publicly burned. All over the continent great meetings were held at which, with more or less vehemence of speech, but with a common enthusiasm and a common indignation, the bill was denounced and the determination to resist it defiantly asserted. When General Gage arrived on his mission of administration, he found not merely the colony of Massachusetts, but the whole continent in an uproar. He had to deal with a vast majority of the people who were in proclaimed resistance to the act, and who only differed in the extreme of resistance to which they were prepared immediately to go, and a minority who either approved or did not altogether disapprove of the act. Gage was condemned to the government not of a cowed, 
humbled and friendless province but of a raging nation frantic at the infringement of its rights and sustained in the struggle it was resolved to make by the cheer and aid of a league of sister nations the flame from the fury's torch had spread with a vengeance gage was a brave man an able man an honourable man but for alexander he was a little over-parted the difficulties he had to encounter were too great for him to grapple with the work he was meant to do too vast for his hands or the hands of any man he was sent out to sway a chastened and degraded province he found himself opposed by a defiant people exalted by injustice and animated by attack End of section fifteen